All right, two quick, two quick facts about me, all right? First fact is this, I have a divided heart, okay? I have a divided heart, and here's where it's primarily divided is, I really want to be skinny and strong, okay? That's one side of my heart, that's something I really actually want. And then the other side of my heart is I really love food and laying down, okay? And so, this is a divided heart, okay? And if you can't tell by looking at me, uh, one side of my heart wins a lot more than the other, and it's the comfort food side, okay? So that's one, so one fact about me. Second fact about me, uh, being married to my wife has funda- fundamentally changed who I am. My likes and my dislikes have changed because of being married to my wife. Here's what I mean. I'm sitting on the couch with her the other day and I'm just watching this show with her and I'm just thinking to myself, do I like Chip and Joanna Gaines now? Like, is this, do I like them? Do I wanna be like them? Like, what, what is going on here? Chip is like almost Jesus incarnate, I think, sometimes. He's just such a good guy. Uh, he's really, I really hate that. He's who all our wives measure us up to. But, um, I'm sitting there watching it, and I'm going, do I like this? Do I like them now? Do I like this show? Like, years ago, I hate those kinds of shows. I hate all of that kind of stuff. It just looks like, let's watch a show about chores. Like, I don't, I don't, this is not my thing. But all of a sudden, after years of being with my wife, who has affections for those kinds of shows, and for Chip and Joanna Gaines, I'm going, I think I might like them now. Like, I think I might like these kinds of shows. And so there's been a fundamental change to my likes and my dislikes because of my marriage, because of my relationship with my wife, Jess. So why are those two facts about me? Well, today, we're looking at the twilight years of King Solomon. We're really looking at the the end of his life. We're in this series called We Want a King, where we've been spending some time doing basically some character studies of the first three kings of Israel. And we're on this third king, King Solomon, and we're looking at the twilight years of his life. And what I realized is those kinds of things that are happening to me, a divided heart and affections that are changed, are the kinds of things that happen to Solomon. And in the passage that we're going to be in today, in 1 Kings 11, we're really going to see how those things have even bigger, wider effects on his life and on the trajectory of Israel's life as well. And so we're going to take an in-depth look at some of those things. And so we're going to be in 1 Kings 11 today. We're going to see some of those things about King Solomon. But as I said, this has really been like an in-depth character study of these first three kings. And so today we're going to go a little bit more in-depth with Solomon. And we're going to see uh, three things. We're going to look at three aspects of Solomon's character of who he is. And so the first thing that we're going to see, we're going to look at is Solomon's heart. The second thing we're going to look at is are our, our Solomon's affections. And then the third thing we're going to look at is Solomon's age, okay? And so as we go through that, as we look at his heart, as we look at his affections, and as, as we look at his age, what we are going to notice are the things that are happening to Solomon are things that happen to us as well in different kinds of ways. And so Solomon is very much going to act as a mirror for us in a lot of ways today. So uh, before we hop in, in 1 Kings 11, let me give you a little update 
on what Solomon's life has been up to, up to since our, our last sermon. So again, we're not kind of just going through it verse by verse in this series. Uh, and so we're skipping over chapters at times. And so we're skipping over chapters 9 and 10. Where we were at last week was Solomon dedicated the temple to the Lord. And it was this big, beautiful moment. In chapter 9, the Lord meets with him and talks with him again about some things. And then what kind of happens after that in, in chapter 10 is Solomon's fame takes off. He just becomes the most famous king in the region. He's known for his wisdom. That Many other royal people, kings and queens, they want to come and see this temple of the Lord. They want to come and see Solomon and get to know him. And so what, what comes with his fame is all kinds of riches that the, these other royalties from the other regions and other countries bring with them to pay homage to Solomon, probably to even curry favor with Solomon because they're saying this guy is the biggest, baddest, wisest guy in the region, so we want to be in good with him. And so what, where we're at in the story, or what we missed in the story, rather, is Solomon has become famous, he's become powerful, and he's done all kinds of, uh, he's really done everything a king would ever want to do. And that's where our story picks up for us in 1 Kings 11. And so I'm going to read the first 13 verses. I know usually I kind of break up the passage we're in, but today I'm just going to read it all at once because it kind of just fits better uh, like together all at once like that, and then we'll kind of talk through those things I mentioned. So it it might be a little bit longer for you guys, but what I realize is I say that a lot on Sundays, so you're probably like, no, this is actually, uh, we're used to it by now. So um, 1 Kings 11 verse 1 says this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Okay, so to kind of recap what we just read, Solomon's really powerful. 
He starts meeting all these kings and they start giving them all kinds of wives and concubines to a, a crazy amount. It says that he has a thousand in total, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And he just kind of goes, Solomon, did you forget some of their names? Like, how did you keep up with this, man? But he, he, he dives deep into this, even though we see this command that he was disobeying. And we've heard about another command earlier in the series that, that God told his kings not to marry multiple wives and gather wives for themselves. But Solomon does it. And as Solomon does it, what comes with those wives from other countries are the gods of those countries as well. And so Solomon begins to also worship those gods. His heart goes after those gods, right? We heard earlier in this series that David was a man after God's own heart. Now Solomon is a, is a man whose heart is after these wives and concubines, after these other gods, and after God. It's, it's, it's a divided Heart. And so what he begins to start doing is he begins to start building the, those sort of worship places for those sort of gods. He brings in the, the religious worship of, of other countries, of, of other gods into Jerusalem. And this becomes a part of Solomon's life and Israel's life. And you could read the rest of 1 Kings and 2 Kings and see that this is very much something that, that the kings of Israel had to... Uh, deal with in, and really they had a lot of unfaithfulness in and it was a lot because of a, a do a lot because of how Solomon had set things up and so then the Lord is displeased with this he's like Man, these are the first two commandments like if you look at the ten commandments like these are the you're like not obeying the first two I've, 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 I've met you personally twice like God revealed himself to Solomon in a special and extraordinary way, gave him the supernatural wisdom, talked with him almost like face to face in one sense. And so he goes, I'm gonna, I, I, I can't let this abide. I'm gonna take the kingdom away from you. And God, remembering his covenant with David, goes, listen, I made a covenant with your dad though. And, and, and his covenant that God had made with David was essentially going, hey, I'm gonna make sure a king from the line of David stays on the throne or is the everlasting king one day. And so he goes, I'm not gonna tear the kingdom away from you, Solomon, in your lifetime. I'm gonna tear it away from your son. And I'm just gonna leave him with one tribe. The rest of Israel is gonna splinter off. I'm gonna leave your son with just one tribe. And so God is angry, displeased. He's punishing Solomon, but he doesn't even kind of go full measure. He kind of lightens it in, in lots of ways. And so that's kind of a recap of what we just read. And I think in these verses, we see the author of Kings once again doing this kind of character development work of Solomon. We've been, as we've been in this series, I think about four weeks now, we've watched that there's been these little details that the author gives, and these details are character development of Solomon. They help us to understand who he is. They help us to see why his trajectory ends up being what we see in today's passage at the end of his life where he's turning away from other gods. And so I wanna take some time and look at, at three aspects of Solomon to see some of that character development that the author is pointing out. And so we're gonna, again, we're gonna look at his heart, his affections, and his age. So let's start by looking at Solomon's heart at the end of his life. At the end of Solomon's life, his, his heart is divided. His heart is divided. It's divided between love of God, 
love of these women, and, and, and even love of their gods. That, that's where Solomon's heart is divided. Uh, there's a theologian named Ian Proven who wrote a great commentary on First and Second Kings, and, and he says this about Solomon. He says, a divided heart leads to a divided kingdom for Solomon. And I think this might be the point of the section. Like, I think you can get a lot out of this passage, but I think this might be the point of the section. And it's really what I just said, but I'm gonna rephrase it. It's this, the God of the Bible does not want a king with a divided heart. The God of the Bible does not want a king with a divided heart. It's really interesting how much the kings in the, the first three kings of Israel, how much we get a glimpse at their hearts and what their hearts are doing through, throughout these generations. With King Saul, who we had first, his heart was indifferent to God, it seemed like. Then we have David. His heart is after God's own heart. And now we have Solomon, who's almost kind of a mixture. His heart is divided his heart is chasing after other gods. It still kind of loves the Lord. And you can see that in some of these other passages. Like Solomon's love and heart for the Lord is mixed. His heart is divided and it leads to a divided kingdom. And the reason I point that out is because I want us to see that because of sin in the world and because of sin in us, we're not that different from Solomon. Our hearts become easily divided. Right? I, I used a joke example at the beginning of this sermon, but that is really a microcosm of what all of our hearts do. They're often divided. Like most of us are fine with loving God. We just also want to love a bunch of other stuff as much as we love God. And we would never phrase it that way in our head. But if you looked at our lives and our actions, you'd go, man, that, that doesn't line up. Uh, Solomon shows us there's a danger in that. And the, the danger is there, not because, again, this is kind of arbitrary rules that we've got to follow from God. There's a danger in that because when God is giving commands and statutes, he's giving us a clue into what you and I were created to be. God himself doesn't have us, he doesn't have divided hearts for us because that's not what he's created us to have. He created us to not have divided hearts when it comes to him and our allegiance to him. I actually love, uh, you've probably heard this before, but I love how this ancient theologian of the fourth century, Augustine, uh, if you know Augustine, I've heard that name. Uh, he, I love how he kind of talks through this idea of a divided heart. And he doesn't use the, the same language that I'm using, but he talks through this idea of having disordered loves. And I think this is what is happening to Solomon. And I think this is what happens to us, right? Uh, what, what the saint Augustine says is, it, it's not that we can't love other things than God. It's that we have to get the order or the priority of our love right in order to flourish or even in order to obey God. And so when your heart becomes disordered in how it loves or divided, as I was saying earlier, in how it loves, trouble comes with it. You're essentially, I would even say, you're living outside of the creational order for what humans are, are supposed to be. Right, so a real practical example of disordered loves and, and how you can see how it would lead to trouble, okay, right? Like, I need to love my wife 
more than I love my dog, okay, right? And which is really easy because I don't have a dog. And so, but this is kind of the idea. It's not that you can't love your dog, but you shouldn't love your dog more than your wife. It was also a little bit weirdly quiet when I said that, like, wait, whoa. I do love my dog more than my wife. Well, then you have disordered loves, okay? Point, point proven, right? And this is what Augustine is talking about. And this is what we see with Solomon here. We see disordered loves. We see divided loves. For us, as the people of God, when it comes to God, God and our love for him should be at the top of the order of our love. Our allegiance to him should be the primary driving force of our hearts. If, if not, Solomon shows us that a divided heart leads to a divided kingdom. You're, you're gonna see this idea that God is to be primary for the humans, like, but for the people of God especially. That God is to be primary. You see this idea all throughout the Bible. At some point, somebody comes up to Jesus in the New Testament. And he essentially says, what's the greatest commandment to Jesus? Which we have to really kind of almost translate and realize, like, this person is saying, what's the meaning of life? Like, how am I supposed to live life? How am I supposed to live day in, day out? What's the greatest commandment for God, from God on how to live life? And God's response to that person is, love the Lord your God with all your might, strength, heart, and soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself, God in the flesh, is cluing us in that, that it's important to not have a disordered loves. To not have a divided heart. That our allegiance and love to God should be primary, not secondary or equal to the other things that we love. God is cluing us in on is there's something fundamental to our humanity to love God with priority. I, I even think there's something to the structure of the universe to loving God with priority. And I think too often our hearts are, are divided in our love of God and, and without, with whatever other things we love. And we see that certainly happening with Solomon here. I think it's important to know it can happen with us. Okay, let's look next at Solomon's affections. So we just looked at his heart. Let's look at his affections. So we see kind of, we see Solomon's affections play out. We see the things he has a, a affection for. Now, it's important to know uh, Solomon's affections here, there's probably multiple affections happening here. We certainly see he has some sort of affection for women. This reminds us of David uh, in a lot of ways, as you can see. Um, but he also probably had an affection for power. Because in that day, for a king to have this many wives, it was really like a power move. It was a flex, as the kids say, right? And so this, he had all these deals and treaties with all these kings of all of these regions, and it was showing the sort of power he had over the region. And so scholars debate, oh, was it his affection for women or was it his affection for power? And I just go, hey, it's both. Like, I think he probably had an affection for power and an affection uh, for women. And, and his very affections, as we see in the story, uh, causes him, these affections for women and for power, it causes him to marry a thousand women. 
A thousand women, which is, which is a, a crazy amount of women. And again, 700 women and then 300 concubines. And then, as he's married to these women, in turn, his faith in God, his faith in Yahweh, is fundamentally changed. He starts worshiping all these other gods. Again, these are the first two commandments. It's like, don't do that. And Solomon's like, no, I, I, I love them too much. Like, I, I love their gods too. Their, his affections for his wives turns his heart. He starts building worship centers to these other gods. And Israel, Israel, who is supposed to be known as a people with the God of the universe and that there's no God like him. But Solomon, the wisest man ever, gets drawn into that. His affections fundamentally change him. There's something really, I think, relevant that, that Solomon shows us here. I don't know if it's the point of the text, but I think it's something that we can see, and it's this. Who you marry can change who you worship. Who you marry can change who you worship. I've noticed that one of the hardest things about some Christian communities, including our Christian community, is this idea that very often among the people of God, amongst, among us as Christians, we encourage uh, Christians to marry Christians. Uh, and it's because of passages like this. And it's because of, partially because of these laws in the Old Testament. So when we see this law where God is telling Solomon and really the people of Israel not to marry foreign people, God isn't racist there. God isn't giving a, a racist commandment. What God was seeing was that the people of the regions near Israel all worshipped other gods and God saw that when one person marries someone with a different God that their affections change. Their allegiance to God changes. And then in the New Testament, you see this practice happen again, although it's not across ethnic lines anymore. It's really across religious lines. If you read the writings of Paul, you're going to notice that Paul has this assumption that, that Christians are, are, are marrying Christians, like that that was something that, that, that God had for, for a way of his people. And I've noticed that that's really hard. I've noticed when we kind of, when we invite people in to, to listening to that, that way of God, in my opinion, it, it can be really hard. It's hard for a, a, a lot of reasons, like just practical reasons. Like it's hard enough to find someone kind and loving that you like vibe with and connect with, right? Like that's, that's hard enough. Add allegiance to Jesus Christ on top of that and it makes it like feel impossible, right? Or even just the practical thing in the church. Uh, I don't know if you know this, in most evangelical churches, the percentage of women to men is greater. There's more women than men. So just mathematically, it's like, this is like if we all pair up, it's not gonna work out in the end, Anthony. Like, I've noticed there's just a lot of reasons why this, uh, this command can be difficult to follow. And so I want to give a few thoughts on, on this idea, uh, this thing that, this idea of Christians marrying other Christians, because I, I think it's increasingly viewed as like archaic or legalistic. Uh, and so here's a handful of thoughts. One, uh, do I agree? Do I agree with it? Do I think this is something that God calls for us today to live into? I do. I think if you're a single Christian and you're wanting to get married, 
I think you should marry a Christian. Because I do think the affections of your heart can be turned by the affections of your spouse for another God or other idols or whatever they might be. To quote a pastor I heard years ago say this, I would rather you be lonely now than lonely in your marriage. And I know right, right away what's probably creeping up in some of us. You don't know my guy. He really, he really respects my faith. He's, he's, he's great. He's amazing. And here's what I would say to this. Yeah, I, I, he probably is. Christians don't have a hold on virtue. Any human can be virtuous. And I think a lot of non-Christian guys, I truly believe this, are more virtuous than me. One of my best friends, he's not a Christian, he, I just am stunned by how good of a person he seems to me. But even with that in mind, as I personally read scripture, it seems like a bad idea. Or it seems to be not what God has for his people. That they, to, to marry someone of a different faith. So again, you, you might say, the, all the Christian guys I know, they're morally repugnant. And I go, I, I'm sorry. I hate that for you. I wish that wasn't true. I don't know why that is. I'm working my tail off to, to make that not be. But I still don't think we're called to marry someone that doesn't share your allegiance to Jesus, which is a high bar. That is a high bar of righteousness, which I think is why a lot of times this idea gets seen as legalistic. And I'll say this, any high bar of righteousness that we're called to, and it could be anything, there's all sorts of righteousness that Jesus is inviting us into to live out ourselves. And any high bar of righteousness and the suffering that comes with it and the pain that comes with it at times, it will be met with satisfaction from Jesus himself or one day when God shows all of his glory, the glory that God gives us will far outweigh any of the suffering that comes with righteousness here and now. So I also want to say this. If you're already married to someone who, who's not a Christian, doesn't share, share your allegiance to Jesus, I would just say that no worries. I don't want you to feel guilt. I'm not trying to get you to feel guilt here. Paul, in the New Testament, he talks through this idea too, and he basically says, hey, stay married to that guy. Hopefully we can flip him, right? Like, and that's my hope too. If you need me to evangelize to one of your spouses, let me know. Um, I promise to do it in love. I promise to listen, because I understand why giving your allegiance to Jesus can be so difficult. Uh, I, and then I, I finally I want to say this about kind of this idea I think, the sometime, I think sometimes the pain of this command for, for Christians to marry Christians, which I, I see scripturally personally, is I think the pain is felt more so because we don't bring dignity to singleness. A lot of times we love to blame the church and say, oh, it's just the church. But if you watch our culture, our culture doesn't bring a whole lot of dignity to singleness. Now they might bring dignity to like being able to do whatever you want relationally. But if you watch every movie we watch has relationships. Every movie, you're like, there's a relationship about lo love and romance here. There's an undercurrent of our, our culture that does not dignify single people. And then, yeah, in the church, at times, we don't dignify single people. 
In the church, sometimes it's talked about like marriage is like the next step of your faith. That's just not true, biblically. If you look at what the Bible says. And so in the church, we have to bring dignity to singleness. Because in God's kingdom, being single is just as great as being married. It's just as needed. It's just as valuable. In fact, if you read Paul, it's almost like he says it's more valuable, which some of the married people in the room might wrestle with. And I would just remind you that your Lord and Savior was single, and so was Paul. And so we need to bring more, more dignity to being single, and I think this command becomes less painful. It still would be painful, but maybe less. There's a great book by Sam Alberry, who's a single and celibate man who uh, wrote a, a book on singleness, and it's called Seven Myths About Singleness. It's one of my favorite books I read over the last number of years. It's just really helpful to read, and I encourage you guys to read it. Maybe it will help you to bring dignity to singleness too, in a culture that doesn't, and in an evangelical world, church world, that doesn't. So in light of all that, in light of that conversation, what I want us to see though, and what would be wise for us to see is that Solomon, the wisest man of all time, who saw God in a dream and then saw God, I don't know, face to face, we don't quite know the details. He saw God in ways that we haven't seen God, I think. Even his affections were turned away by the affections of his wives. So we'd be foolish to think that can't happen to us. Okay, finally, let's look at Solomon's age, Solomon's age. I, I just really, I find it really interesting that verse four, the author points out to us that Solomon turned after these other gods in his old age, right? This is character development of the author. The author wants us to know when this is happening, how this happened. It happens to Solomon when he's older. Solomon had this supernatural wisdom for decades before his heart was turned. I think sometimes for us as Christians, as we, as we get older, I think too often we kind of think to ourselves, oh, I would never do that. I would never do that. That's something young people do. I would never do that thing, whatever the thing is. But the lesson from Solomon here is, oh, yes, you could. You could definitely do that. And so for those of us who are older in, in the room, I think we should let this uh, picture of Solomon spur us on to keep guard over our hearts, realizing that we too can falter, we too can fail, we too can turn in different ways. Not to mention, I, I just think as I get older, it becomes easier for me to stagnate in my faith and, and to not let my mind be renewed by the Lord or, or not push into the fruit of the Spirit and become more, I, I hope when I'm 90, I'm more, I have more fruit of the Spirit in my life, that I'm more fruitful when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. But I think a lot of times we hit this age where we hit whatever check boxes we feel we hit and we kind of stagnate. And I think Solomon kind of helps us see that that's possible for us, for us in our old age as well. We begin to think we don't have to watch over our hearts anymore. We think we don't have to change our ways. We think we are right about everything. Solomon turned away from God in certain ways 
in his old age, and so can we. So, kind of depressing sermon today. All right, I'll see you guys next week. Um, here's what I basically just said to all of you guys. Your hearts are easily divided. Your, your affections are easily changed. And even when you're old, you can fail and falter. Here, here's, what, here's the good news about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is beautiful, and we as Christians should not rank the Old Testament as less than the New Testament. The Old Testament gives us beautiful pictures and wondrous pictures of who God is, and it gives an accurate picture of humanity, as we can see, like we can really relate to a lot of who humans are in the Old Testament. But the good news about the Old Testament is the story was not complete. God was not done telling the story of his word and his work and his redemption. God was not done. He was not done with Solomon or with what he wanted to offer humanity. What we see in Jesus, how the New Testament starts, this second kind of part of the story, a really continuation of the story of God and history and what he does. What we see in Jesus is Jesus has what Solomon needed. Jesus lives this life displaying the kingdom because he's the king that we really actually need. Jesus dies on the cross because everyone's sin needed to be atoned for and no temple could do enough atoning for it. And Jesus resurrected because even guys like Solomon, they couldn't find the fountain of youth. And Jesus wanted to offer us resurrection. And we call all that the gospel, the good news, the proclamation of these events of what Jesus did. But with the gospel comes the very work of God. And I think sometimes we see the facts and the history of the gospel and we miss the work of the gospel and what the gospel does for us as humanity. So in Solomon's day, his divided heart seemed to send him on a trajectory where it seems like his heart never really turned fully back all the way to God. Even at the end of David's life, we see this repentance continue to happen. In, in Solomon's life, we don't see it so much. So Solomon's divided heart turns him from God and he, he might not ever quite turn back. But... King Jesus' work on the cross and through the resurrection ushered in a time of the Holy Spirit where now every time our hearts are divided, there is a way back. We're never too far gone. The Holy Spirit will do work to help us find our way back. That is a work of the gospel where his people get his spirit in us and his spirit will guide us back to him. In Solomon's day, God was displeased with him. He was angry with him. He was so displeased with him that he took away the kingdom from him and from his son, really. And what we see in the work of the gospel is Jesus' affections for us are so huge that Jesus let his life be taken away so we can never be taken away from his kingdom. He's reversed it. He's flipped it. That's the good news of the story of the Bible. As beautiful as the Old Testament is, as accurate it is, as showing us the picture of God and who he is, the story was not done. God wanted his covenant relationship with his people and with humanity to be so powerful that 
It's his life that gets taken away so we are not removed from the kingdom. I think even though God is displeased by our sin and our idolatry at times, I think the power of Jesus' righteousness is so powerfully on us because of work of the gospel that God's affections never turn from us. The work of the gospel is that in all the ways that Solomon failed and we failed just like him, it now results in different consequences. That's what the gospel has done. That's what Jesus did. And so God, God is so good in showing us the life of Solomon and the different wisdoms that, that come with it as well as the pitfalls that we could potentially fall into. But because the story kept going, those are no longer heavy burdens for us to bear, but truths that help us run to God, turn to God, turn back to him, know our security in his kingdom. And so church, I, may, we, may we see ourselves in the mirror that Solomon provides. And may we see that because of Jesus, we get even more of the goodness of God than Solomon did. Amen? Amen, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we live on the other side of the gospel. I, I, I don't always understand how you work or how you've worked through history, but you have. And you give us these pictures of how you work through history so we understand you more and thank you for that. But God, thank you for your son who really is the gospel, who is the good news. That you've done all of this to save us and reconcile us and bring us back to you and help our divided hearts. And, and God, what your son did was so powerful that even when our hearts divided, I feel, I, I know that you fix us. I know that you're gently turning us back to you in all kinds of ways. And God, for those of us in seasons where we feel maybe we're too far gone or maybe this person's too far gone or whatever, kind of, whether it's judgment of ourselves or judgment of others, God, Holy Spirit, would you come and comfort? Would you come and speak to that? Would you come and guide? We wanna be a people that uh, have a allegiance in you, God. We want to be a people where our loves are ordered, but we need your spirit for that. And God, I'm thankful for the gospel because the gospel has made it possible to get that automatically by just faith in your son rather than have to work for it in some way. And so God, we love you and we need you. Amen.